0: It would not be an exaggeration to say that one of the greatest minds ever to live was Saul of Tarsus, who is better known to us as the Apostle Paul. To use an expression, he had a mind like a steel trap. He could think as accurately and as technically and as deeply and as profoundly as any man in his day, or in any day for that matter. After he had contemplated and partially delineated God's fathomless plan of salvation as set forth in the book of Romans, he uttered this lofty doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Beloved, that is the proper response to a contemplation of God's plan to save the lost. The wisdom and knowledge displayed in God's plan to save the lost is unfathomable. The story begins back in Genesis chapter 12. Please turn there with me in your Bible to the very first book of the Bible, the 12th chapter, Genesis chapter 12. Why do I say that the story begins in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis? Why not chapter 1? Doesn't the story of the Bible begin in Genesis chapter 1? Yes and no. Let me explain what I mean. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us about four major events that are the key to understanding the rest of the Bible and all of life. Those four events are creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. If you don't know about those four events, if you don't understand those four events and their implications, you will never be able to answer questions about life. Where did this universe come from? Any intelligent person knows that nobody times nothing cannot equal everything. How did all of this get here? The answer, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The flowers, the trees, the lakes, the rivers, the oceans, the animals were all made by God. Then God used the dust of the ground to make the pinnacle of his creation, the human race. But if God created everything, including man, and God is good, then how did this world get so messed up? The answer to that question is the fall of mankind into sin. Genesis 3 tells us about the most horrible event ever to happen in all of history, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and plunged humanity into sin. Because of sin, this wonderful world that God created is under a curse. That's why there are earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and other natural disasters. This world is out of sync because of the curse of sin. And that's our problem too. The reason society and our world are so messed up is because of sin. The reason relationships are so messed up is because of sin. Understanding the fall of humanity into sin answers a host of questions. The next major event in the book of Genesis is the flood. Because the wickedness of the human race grew so great, and because of God's holy and righteous hatred for sin, he judged the entire world by sending a worldwide flood to destroy every living thing on the face of the earth except for the people and the animals that were in the ark. This helps us understand so many things about present-day geology, like fossils, rock strata, etc. The fourth major event in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the Tower of Babel. Because mankind refused to obey God's command to scatter throughout all the earth, God confused their speech By establishing different languages. And the result was that the people broke up into groups according to their language. So these four events. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Are foundational to understanding all of life really. And all the rest of the story of the Bible. Now when you read about these events in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You almost get the impression that the author is somewhat hurrying to get to chapter 12 because the actual story of the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God chose to begin carrying out his plan through a man named Abram who was later called Abraham. Chapters 1 through 11, now consider this, think about this. Chapters 1 through 11 cover hundreds and hundreds of years and include many different people But the story slows down exceedingly when we come to chapter 12 and the camera zooms in from a panorama view onto one man, Abram. Look at the opening verses of Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. We know from from Joshua 24, 2, that Abram's father was an idolater, worshiping other gods, worshiping false gods. Maybe Abram himself was an idol worshiper. So why did God call him? Why did God choose him? Two words, sovereign grace, sovereign grace. God was not obligated to save and bless Abraham. In fact, God is not obligated to save and bless anyone. The only thing that God owes us, really, is the lake of fire. The only thing God owes the entire human race is the lake of fire. But God is a God of grace, immense, immeasurable grace. And He sovereignly chooses to bestow His grace upon undeserving mankind. That's what we see here in verse 1 of Genesis 12. Verse 2 continues to record God's words to Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the introduction to the monumental Abrahamic covenant. The actual establishment of the covenant is over in chapter 15. So turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 15. And notice how God established this covenant with Abram. Verse 1 tells us, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God... What will you give me, seeing I go childless? In the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That's one of the greatest verses in all of Hebrew Scripture. That is a statement of Abraham's salvation, and it is a statement of how salvation is always obtained by grace through faith. Abraham believed in Yahweh on this occasion. And when he believed, just like when you and I believe in Christ Abraham received positional righteousness. Righteousness was credited to his spiritual record. Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament in Romans because it's so key in understanding salvation. It has always been by grace through faith. Verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. That is a representation of God. This is symbolizing God moving between the pieces of these animals that were cut open for the establishment of the covenant. Anyone in the ancient world reading this would have immediately known what's going on here. This is the establishment of a covenant. The animals are cut open in a place where there's a valley that goes down. The blood would pool there. Both participants would walk through, get the blood on their feet, ankles, knees, etc. And it was a way of saying, if I break this covenant, this is what will happen to me. My blood will be shed. But on this occasion, notice what happened. Abram went to sleep, and God passed between the the pieces of the animals alone alone. God did it alone. Verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Beloved, it is difficult to overemphasize the importance of this event that we've just read. When God passed between the pieces of those animals alone, It was his way of promising that he would fulfill this covenant regardless of the faithfulness of Abraham or his descendants. In other words, this is an unconditional covenant in its ultimate fulfillment. It was conditional in the sense that to enjoy its benefits, it is necessary for the participants to have faith and obedience, but it is an unconditional covenant in its ultimate fulfillment. The Abrahamic Covenant involves three components. A land, descendants, and blessings. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and that his descendants would possess the land of Canaan and that through his descendants, God would bless the nations. Beloved, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of God's plan to save and bless the world. God has always had a heart for the world and he's always had the perfect plan to bless the families of the earth even though we might not be able to see it when God was focusing his plan on one man, namely Abram. This is not the way we would have done it. But God's ways are so much higher and so much better than ours. As we heard earlier from the pen of Paul, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who can give God any advice? Say, God, you should do it this way. This is a better way. So God chose Abram. And in time, God gave him a son named Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob begot 12 sons. And they were the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's sons was named Joseph, who was sold as a slave into Egypt. But God was in that. Because eventually the whole family of 70 people ended up down in Egypt due to a severe famine. But they stayed in Egypt too long and ended up becoming slaves of the nation. This set the stage for God to show his mighty power by delivering them from the hand of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And that is exactly what God did in the Exodus. Beloved, understand this. The Exodus of the Old Testament is like the cross of the New Testament. Both events were the means of deliverance for God's people so God delivered Israel out of bondage and sent them toward their promised land along the way God made another covenant at Mount Sinai it is called the Mosaic covenant because God gave the covenant through Moses it is also called the covenant of law because it contained all the laws the people were to obey to experience God's blessing not his salvation the covenant of law was not given as a way of salvation did you hear that? The covenant of law was not given as a way of salvation. The law was given to people who had already experienced God's salvation. We know from the book of Galatians that this covenant was intended by God to be a temporary covenant, unlike the Abrahamic covenant. Turn over with me into the New Testament to Galatians chapter 3. Past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans... 1st and 2nd Corinthians then Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Here in this section of the letter Paul is contrasting the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant of law. Notice his contrast. Chapter 3 verse 13. Paul writes Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds (coughs) as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ." And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? Notice this statement. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, To whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Please notice that Paul says the law was added. That begs the question. It was added to what? It was added to the Abrahamic covenant, which is superior to and supersedes the temporary Mosaic covenant of law. Verse 20 says, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. In other words, you only need a mediator when more than one person is involved in something. But remember what we saw back in Genesis 15. When God ratified the Abrahamic covenant, he ratified it alone. Thus, it is superior to the covenant of law. Verse 21 says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scriptures confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. Now, it couldn't be stated any clearer than that. Once Messiah Jesus came to this earth and required men and women to place their faith in him, the covenant of law was set aside because it had served its purpose. Its purpose for generations of people who had not experienced God's salvation, was to, one, reveal man's sinfulness, two, the inability of man to save himself, and three, our desperate need for a Savior. Once the Savior came, the covenant of law was set aside. It was never intended to be permanent, as the Abrahamic covenant was. That very important point helps us understand a couple other covenants that were made by God as an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. For example, turn back into Hebrew scripture with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. You are probably familiar with this story when David had the idea to build a temple. And he was proceeding down that path. And we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the, since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Whenever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, From following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in the place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now understand what's going on here. David David thought he was going to make a house for God. He says, What, what is the this this discrepancy? I, I live in a beautiful house of Cedar and the Ark of God's in the tent. I'm going to make God a house. And God here says, No, no, David, you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. Well, what does that mean? Let's keep reading. He says, I'm going to make you a house. God's making a promise to David. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled... And you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish, And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, here it is. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is known as the Davidic covenant. Some of the promises connected to this covenant would come to pass during David's lifetime and then Solomon's lifetime. But some of the promises pertain to the reign of Messiah Jesus. That is why Gabriel when announcing to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah, said this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, listen, David. Give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, Luke 1, 32 and 33. So this promise to David here in Second Samuel 7 further delineates the Abrahamic covenant. Because God had told Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, there's one other covenant we need to look at to get the complete picture. Look with me at Jeremiah 31. Just keep turning to the right to Jeremiah, past the Psalms, Proverbs, into Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. <coughs> Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. It is also described in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following. The new covenant promises forgiveness of sins. It promises new hearts which love God and His Word. It promises an intimate personal relationship with God, described here as knowing the Lord. It's a glorious covenant that began to be fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself said, to, said so. Luke twenty two twenty 20 says, Likewise, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, that inaugurated, that kicked off the new covenant. But wait, there's a problem. The description of the new covenant here in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel, specifically say that it is for the house of Israel and Judah. In other words, it's for the Jewish people. What about us? What about those of us who are not Jewish? Are we excluded from the glorious privileges of the new covenant? Absolutely not. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, the Apostle Paul clearly indicates that the benefits of the new covenant are properly celebrated by Gentiles who have placed their faith in Messiah Jesus. Those who humbly embrace the cleansing effects of the blood of Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, come under the glorious privileges of the new covenant. As Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that phrase, you who were once far off, is a reference to us Gentiles. That's us, beloved. So the shed blood of Christ, which inaugurated the new covenant, brings us into the glorious privileges of the new covenant. It's part of what God planned all along when he made his covenant with Abraham and said, In you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just Jewish families. All the families of the earth. All? All the families? Yes. All the families of the earth. In fact, turn to Revelation 5 to see where all of this will eventually lead. Way over to the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John was granted the unique opportunity of seeing into heaven, and this is what he saw. Chapter 5, verse 6, he says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is pictured as a lamb... Because, just like the lambs under the old covenant sacrificial system, he was slain as a sacrifice for sin. Verse 7 says, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This scroll is the title deed to the earth. This is Jesus taking the title deed to the earth because he's going to reign on the earth. Verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, Which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Here we go. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Beloved, here we see all the families of the earth. In heaven there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They will be there because God in his mercy and grace planned that they would be there before he ever laid the foundation of the world. And he set his plan in motion with the call of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. We see a similar scene two chapters later. Chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can number of all nations Tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the result of God's marvelous plan conceived in eternity past, set into motion with the call of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. In heaven, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Mankind doesn't deserve this salvation, but God does deserve this glory being ascribed to him in this passage. God is not obligated to save anyone, but God does deserve glory from everyone. And the day is coming when people from every tribe and tongue And people and nation will give him the glory he so richly deserves because of his abundant grace bestowed on unworthy sinners. Now what is the point of this message in relation to the kickoff of our global outreach conference? Simply this. If this is God's plan, if this is God's intention, then it should be our desire to be a part of the fulfillment of God's plan. You see, our commitment to worldwide missions is not merely motivated by a love for lost people. Sure, that's part of it. But our greatest motivation, our most compelling motivation, is the eternal glory of Jesus, our Savior. We should want to be a part of what God himself is doing on planet Earth. He grants us that privilege. Jesus said while he was here on earth that he came to seek and save that which was lost. And if that's what he did, then, then that should be what we want to do. We should want what he wants. We should be doing what he is doing. In John 10, 16, he said, "Another sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, the other sheep. That Jesus was referring to there are Gentiles. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They must be brought to hear the voice, the word of Jesus. This is the plan of God to save the lost. This is the heart of God. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live as it was then, so it is now. God is calling people to turn from their sin in repentance so they can live, so they can have eternal life. God said to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Beloved, this is the heart of God. We should have a heart for the same thing God has a heart for. To see the heart of God, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Back from the last book of the New Testament to the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 36 tells us, But when he, the he in this verse is Jesus, but when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion. This is the heart of God. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. God is compassionate. And even though mankind does not deserve His goodness, He extends it anyway. That's what we see right here in this passage. Verse 37, Then He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you do this? Honestly now. Do you pray for the Lord to send out laborers? If not, why don't you? Don't you have a heart for the same thing God has a heart for? Hear the heart of Jesus when he says in Luke 13, 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See the heart of Jesus as we read in Luke 19, 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Oh, the hardness of our hearts to never weep over the lost condition of men and women. All the distractions in our hearts to seldom even think about the lost condition of men and women around us and around the world. But this is the heart of God for the world. So what can you and I do? This is the beginning of our Global Outreach Conference, and I want it to be practical for every one of us. So, very practically, what can you do about world missions? Let me give you three things. Number one, you can pray. You can pray two very specific things. First of all, you can pray that God will give you a heart that is like his heart. Beloved, this is the starting point of it all we need to ask God to give us a heart like His heart. Without that, we don't have anything. And anything we determine to do will eventually fall by the wayside for lack of ongoing motivation. So don't get psyched up this week about missions just because of all the activity if you don't have a heart for what God has a heart for because it won't last. You'll just get excited this week and then in time... The cares of life, the responsibilities of life will just push it out. So ask God to give a heart like his heart. And while you're praying for that, ask God to send out laborers as Jesus told us to pray. Pray for a heart like God's and pray for laborers. That's number one. You can pray. Number two, you can go. Now, I realize that we can all be missionaries, and we all should be missionaries to people around us, and I do not want to minimize that. Oh, that God's people would realize that they are missionaries to their neighbors, their, their, their fellow uh, athletes on their sports team, in their class, at work, wherever it is. Oh, that God's people would grab hold of that reality. So we all can be and should be missionaries to people around us. But the fact of the matter is that there are many people around the world who do not have the opportunities to hear the word of God that people around us have. If God were to move your heart, are you willing to make those opportunities for others? I mean, think about it. People around us can turn on the radio and hear David Jeremiah, Jay Vernon McGee, Charles Swindoll, John MacArthur, and others. People around us can go to a bookstore and buy a Bible or buy books that explain the Bible. People around us can go to church on Sunday and hear someone explain the Word of God, teach the Word of God, but many people around the world have no such opportunities. No opportunities. If God were to move your heart, are you willing to make those opportunities for them? You can go. You can pray, you can go, and number three, you can give. You can discipline your spending so that you have more money to give to the Lord's work around the world. Now be careful. Be careful. Don't get get so moved. Don't be so moved to give that you are sloppy or careless and you end up giving to things that are not really in line with God's plan to save the lost. You still need to exercise wisdom and discernment and care when you give. But all of us can do more when it comes to giving to support the work of God around the world. So that's what you can do. You can pray, you can go, and you can give. Not everyone is called to go. That is clear. But it's probably safe to say that more are called to go than do go. But not everyone is called to go. However, all of us are called to pray... And to give. Are you willing to do your part. To share in the privilege. Of God's plan. To save the lost. Let's bow together as we close. As we close our. Service together. And close this message. I would ask you to. Give serious. Thought and consideration to what you have seen in God's word this morning what you have heard from it hopefully it's given you a picture of God's heart for the world God's heart for the lost so if you've never done this and I don't don't want you to do it if it's just by compulsion you're feeling forced Don't, don't do it but if you've never done this for whatever reason here's a good chance just to say God give me a heart like your heart I want my heart to beat after the things that your heart beats after. I want what is important to you to be important to me. I want the priorities of my life, the focus of my life, to be what your priorities are. Maybe you, as a Christian, I'm saying, maybe as a Christian you've never even prayed that kind of prayer. I would encourage you to do that. And put it in your own words. But don't, don't pray it if it's just by compulsion, it will mean nothing. But I encourage you, ask God to give you a heart like his heart. And while you're praying that, ask God to send out laborers. Say, Lord, there are so many more laborers needed around the world, so many places, which have absolutely no gospel witness whatsoever. No opportunity to hear and believe. Lord, send out laborers. You know, if we just start there, if we just start there asking God to give us a heart like His and to send out laborers, we'll be on the right track. Other things will fall in place. Other things will take root in our lives that ought to be there. So I encourage you to do that. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't want to get the cart before the horse it's great if this has moved you in some way to to pray for god to send out laborers but actually the prayer you need to pray is more basic than that more fundamental and that is you need to pray god i'm a sinner and i deserve judgment but i want i heard this morning about your compassion and your forgiveness i want that forgiveness i want to turn my life over to jesus christ i want him to forgive me of my sins And I want to begin living for him. That's the kind of prayer you need to pray if you came here this morning and you don't know Christ. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So however the Lord has stirred your heart, let's not just close our Bibles and walk out of here unchanged. Saying, wow, wasn't that neat to see all those flags up there today or whatever. Let's allow the Spirit of God to cultivate and prompt our hearts and let's respond. Father, thank you so very much for our gathering together this morning. It has been really, it's been encouraging just to think about what you are doing around the world, to see a little glimpse of it, and to recognize the privilege that we have of being a part of that. What a privilege to think that you use us. You use our prayers. You use our giving. You use us to do what you want to do around the world. You don't need us. You wouldn't have to work that way, but it's the way you've chosen to work. And so we are humbled by that consideration. We're in awe of that thought. May we be faithful. God, give us a heart like your heart. May the things that are important to you be important to us. May the goals that you have here on planet Earth be our goals. And in closing, we pray for anyone here who can't even call you Father. Maybe right here in our midst, someone who needs the gospel, who needs to repent and turn to Christ. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to draw that man or woman, that young person, this very day as we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.